G'day everybody, Matt Ellis with you for another edition of the Cricket Library podcast. It's wonderful to have your company as we get to hear the story of the boy from Shepparton who made it in the big time, playing in the IPL alongside the likes of Sashin Tendulkar. Today we get to hear the story of one of the most destructive batsmen in short format cricket around the world, Aidan Blizzard. Oh, that's a carved away. Just short of the rope, I think. He's so strong there. He nearly got to bowl the ball over an at-leg stump to Aiden Blizzard. He gives himself room. His bat speed's enormous. He's carved that away. That's okay. Down the wicket, Blizzard takes on mid on and wins. And it's a very warm welcome to the Cricket Library podcast to Aiden Blizzard. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Look forward to talking a bit of smack about cricket. Yeah, good time to be talking as well. Lockdown mode for a lot of people. How you been coping with that? Uh, let's say it's been interesting. Um, look, I could, it could be a lot worse for, for me um, based on everyone else and their experiences around the world. But um, got a three-and-a-half-year-old uh, son and we live in a uh, in an apartment in Melbourne. So we've had our uh, ups and downs as everyone else has had. But, um, yeah, look, obviously weather's been great, but hopefully these restrictions will stay uh, lifted for now and we can uh, continue to get outside. I, uh, I imagine there's some countries doing it really tough yeah. with weather and, and lockdown. So, um, yeah, all things considered, we're going pretty well. Yeah, and now growing up, you, you grew up in country Victoria, Shepparton and um, different to to Melbourne, obviously. What was what was your life like growing up, and where did your passion for cricket begin? Yeah, I, you're right. I did grow up in Shepherd, and um, it's really stereotypical sort of country uh, kid. So, my parents owned a jewellery store. So, um, dad obviously worked some pretty heavy hours um, early on, and um, had a decent sized backyard. Lived in a court. Uh, there were some kids in our court as well. So. Um, without uh, sort of focusing on cricket too much, it was really sport. So we played a lot of basketball, um, a lot of soccer. I think I played under under six soccer. Um, then sort of summertime comes and you play cricket, and then in the winter I played Aussie rules football. So I played um, football was probably my number one sport up until I was around eighteen or seventeen. Um, Played a lot of underage representative football um, for the Bush Rangers and managed to snag a, an All Australian gig um, as an under fifteen. Um, but like many, my body wasn't built for footy or Aussie rules. So um, the summer sport of cricket really um, turned into a serious option when I turned eighteen. Um, but I really I've represented Victoria in the under under twelves primary school cricket team, and then the next time I represented Victoria was uh, second eleven. Um, when Shane Warne made his comeback game um, from taking a diuretic and um, obviously was, he was banned. So there was a bit of light between um, between representative cricket at, at that level um, for me growing up. But um, one of the things I loved about cricket was um, you were there all day and growing up in the country, you got to spend a lot of time with adults, um, played rep cricket, uh, uh, senior A-grade cricket when I was 14. So from 14 through to uh, 18 when I moved to Melbourne to play, I was really playing with adults. And I really enjoyed um, enjoyed the interactions that were on a, a completely different level 
compared to what you were doing when you were junior. But um, that really kept me in the game and, and, and really kept me um, sort of striving for more um, as any athlete likes. So I was very much an achievement-based um, mentality. So that was uh, that was one of the stimulating factors and one of the things that really kept me interested and in, in cracking uh, uh, cracking on with uh, the development when I was based in Shepparton. And did you find, we, we spoke with Michael Klinger recently on the podcast and he made his entry into senior cricket as a 15-year-old. Did you find that that really helped you to refine your game, having to test your skills uh, against grown men? Yeah, absolutely. Um, grown men don't take too much shit from any younger, younger <laughs> guys and they... Um, they also look. Everyone's competitive that plays at that sort of that level of um, cricket. No matter where you are, whether it's country, um, whether it's extremely rural like a village in in the UK, or if you're here playing in Melbourne or, or across the capital cities, there's there's a level of competitiveness that um, and respect that really drives drives you as a younger kid. Um, I feel like it was a great leveler um, for me. Um, I did learn a lot more about the game really quickly just through um, watching people that really had limited skill sets um, and they were getting the best out of what they what they had. Um, and also it, it really humanises you as a, as a young kid. Often if you are quite talented, you, you do play against people your own age and it doesn't necessarily give you the, uh, the grounding or the, or the reality check of where you are. Um, a lot of young kids develop early and, and plateau and then others obviously are late developers which we see across a lot of different sports that the bigger kids sometimes excel as juniors and don't necessarily develop the resilience or the, the techniques to, to continue to grow so um, I wouldn't trade that the opportunity that I was presented when I was 14 to play um, senior level A-grade cricket uh, and it's definitely something I'll look back on uh, and I'm very thankful that um, sort of my parents allowed it to happen obviously there's playing against grown men, um, the, the dangers are obviously increased as a, as a younger kid, but um, yeah, I, I learned a lot from it and um, I wouldn't try it for the world. And I'd be interested to know um, you, your career, we, we know you best for your power hitting in the shorter formats of the game. You did play also 20 plus first class games. Early on, did you see yourself as a, a as someone who could score quickly? Have you always been someone who's looked to score quickly or is that something that evolved as uh, as you got older and uh, developed into the short for- format player that we know you as? Yeah, absolutely. That's a good question. Um, so I've always scored quickly by, na- uh, by nature. Um, so my, my game was always built on instincts and Growing up in the country, the wickets are a lot slower than um, and drier than what you get in the in the city. So um, for me, it was if the ball's in the slot, I'm going to hit it and react. Um, it got me into a lot of trouble at times, but it also helped me um, develop that power hitting game that that you refer to and what people sort of recognise me for. One of the interesting or the most challenging parts was the transition into to metropolitan or city cricket um, against those quicker bowlers. Um, it sort of my development was fast tracked through Greg Shippard um, when I got into the Victorian team, and it was really around simplifying my game. So um, trying to keep that instinct and the, and the power hitting uh, where needed or where required. But um, one of the things that gets a lot of people into trouble is um, particularly like you look at a Glenn Maxwell if he hasn't been able to refine it, um, which luckily he has that. 
talented people with um, who can play all the shots really struggle to get their game together and organise so, so they can hit those um, those big innings or be there at the end of the of the fifty over or end of the T twenty game to to take the team across the line. So um, yeah, my game refined and I'm I'm a little disappointed upon reflection that I didn't play more red ball cricket or first class cricket. I really enjoyed that. Um, a lot, and it was a real tester. But uh, obviously, as my career progressed, the white ball opportunities were where it was at. And um, even to this day, I, I probably didn't master master my own strategy um, to maximise my time at the crease. But um, yeah, look, I was a role player for most of my career. Um, picked number ten or eleven, um, never the first picks, which is which is something I sort of I'm, I'm really thankful for um, having transitioned out of cricket, but. Um, that was sort of where my always played a role. So that's where that power hitting uh, continued to be um, exploited by um, by teams I played in. And, um, yeah, I'm, I'm really thankful for that opportunity as well. And we all got to see it pretty quick smart in your T20 debut, Adelaide Oval, 89 off 38 balls. Um, Brad Hodge also teed off that day as well. I think he got 70-odd off, off about 50 balls as well. As as a debutante coming in and getting that first up success, can you just talk us through your feelings going into the game and and what it was like to execute your skills the way you did uh, in, in in front of um, the, the the group that you you were entering into for the first time? Yeah, absolutely. It was um, it was New Year's Day, so it was one of those times where I, I believe from memory we actually flew in the morning of. Um, of the game so I didn't have too much time to get nervous but um, one of the, one of the great things about that Victorian team that I, I played with was they had um, a, a hell of a lot of um, international cricketers in it so you look through that list uh, there was Brad Hodge Cam White uh, Dave Hussey Andrew McDonald uh, Michael Klinger played as well Um Adam Crosswaite didn't quite make it, um, but he was an extremely talented player. Um, then it was Shane Harwood, Bryce McGain, Mick Lewis, uh, Dirk Dennis played as well. So the the list was quite strong, and that was one of the, the benefits that I had was to go out there with very little pressure, um, knowing that there was some pretty talented guys to come behind. But, um, yeah, look, to get out there, I was super excited. I think John Moss opened. I was in coming in at three, and... Um, it was a bit surreal. Ryan Harris bowled and um, he hit me in the arm early on and then I uh, I thought, all right, here we go. I'll just throw the bat and see how it goes. And it was one of those times where we've all had innings as where everything sort of clicks and that was one of those moments. Um, sometimes we have net sessions that, um, that where everything clicks and you feel really good. But I was really lucky at this, one, at this time clicked on, the, on my debut game and um, yeah, it happened to be... Broadcast by Fox Sports, and um, yeah, hit a couple of balls out of the Adelaide Oval, which was which was really cool. So it was a great experience, but I feel like I didn't get many runs in the next game, and um, Cloud Nine was quickly deflated, and I uh, was back to the drawing board, and um, back to getting bounces bowled by Mickey Lewis and Shane Harwood in the net. Yeah, yeah, and uh, the cricket is that roller coaster. How do you how do you deal with the the fact that? Um, in the 2020 game, people see that 89 off 38 and um, you said in that first game there was kind of not that much pressure because there were all those other 
high-quality players in the group. As you started to develop a reputation for being the man to do that sort of thing, to hit balls out of the ground, how did you adjust your mindset to help you to not carry that expectation with you when you went out to bat? Yeah, that's um, it's always challenging. And one of the, the great things or the lucky things for me is, as I sort of alluded to before, I felt like I was the 10th or 11th player picked in most teams um, across the journey. So for me, people obviously bowled a lot better to me in terms of the um, drying up my boundary opportunities. But one of the things I learned pretty quickly was if you focus on what other people are doing, um, you often go away from your game and away from your strength. So one of the things that I learned uh, pretty quickly and still struggled to master it towards the end was, um, was around staying still and balanced. So for me, um, if my head was still and my body was balanced, then I was in a position to score off most balls, um, noting that um, I still haven't met a bowler that executed 24 balls out of 24 in the zone that they want to mm. bowl it. So scoring runs was never the issue for me. It was being out there for long enough to score big runs. So that um, that I found that out pretty quickly and um, obviously blood blood rushing um, out there in the first six overs. We used to have targets as to how many runs we'd want to get off those first six overs at different grounds. So um, part of that strategy was um, getting the average winning score um, as a stat that we'd, we'd put up on the board, and that's what Hodgie and I would try and go out and do. Hodgie would normally take the first over. We'd, we'd try and keep it calm, and then um, and then we'd go from there, give ourselves a little bit of time. So that was one of the things I learned quite early. It's something that I really battled with across my career but again um, the, the innings where I was most successful was where I was still and not really thinking about too much and just letting my natural ability take over so um, yeah it's something that I'd, I'd, I have tried to instill in others um, that I've been around in cricket circles and something that I'll swear by is just making sure that you know your limitations and, and stick to your strengths no matter what. Uh, the only time you really need to change your game too you know, in a drastic way is if you're if your strengths become your or your weaknesses become become detrimental to your strengths. So if you keep getting out the same way, um, you're actually not in a position to execute those strengths. So um, yeah, I learned that quite early. But um, as most people, uh, our deficiencies uh, are always something that we're working on. So for me, it was around staying out there for as long as I could um, so I could execute those strengths. And executing those strengths, you, you got the chance to do that uh, in. In, in, in a number of places around the world, you're a bit of a, a cricketing journeyman. Um, h- how did you go uh, starting in those new groups? Um, you, first class cricket, you played, I think, in three different states. You played at a, a number yep. of different franchises around the world. Uh, what worked for Aidan Blizzard going into a new group and feeling comfortable and uh, feeling uh, able to express yourself the way you did on the cricket field? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. I feel like um, the places where I had most challenges were where there was um, maybe a lack of clarity around around my role in particular. Um, and I know cricket's one of those unique sports where we can define a role for you, but um, the reality is the wicket changes quite regularly. Um, the, the opposition changes quite regularly. Um, and there's a lot of things that we can't control in cricket. So um, the thing that helped me the most was around focusing on, on what I could control um, and a lot of the time it was being myself um, and being comfortable being myself 
Um, we all know the politics that are, that are surrounded club cricket um, all the way through to international cricket. And the, the thing that I learned pretty quickly was the things you can't control are the things that um, always take you to a dark place uh, if you give it enough air. So mm. um, it was around just being myself and being comfortable that I was enough in, in the shoes that I was in um, and that the better teams that I played in always sort of found a role for me to, to fit or adjust slightly to, to fit a role. Um, the ones where I really struggled was when um, I was trying to change my game or change who I was to, to fit into a team. So one of the great things about cricket is it, it's so multicultural, it's so diverse, and you only look at the difference in, in personalities that we have across our club team or a junior team. We've got different scorers, we've got team managers, we've got a lot of volunteers, and all the way up to professional cricketers that are coming back from international cricket. So um, I feel like it's a, it's a great leveler at the very much a welcoming uh, sport for all. So um, but for me, it was around just being myself and, and knowing that I'll, I'll find my find my way, um, which is essentially why I looked for opportunities um, at other places as well. Um, coaches change, administrators change, and teams change. So um, being one of those last picks, as I sort of alluded to earlier, sometimes it gets a little insecure and you've got to search for opportunities. So... Um, that movement has been uh, extremely uh, – it's, it's a great experience for me. Um, as I said, transitioning out of cricket, but, um, yeah, it's not uh, – I would have loved to have stayed in one place and, and, and set up my life around it. But, um, look, elite sport's quite tough and it's very competitive, so sometimes you do need a change. And um, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't change the, uh, the experiences I've had around the world, that's for sure. And having the opportunity to play IPL, uh, just from afar looking at it, it's it's a real showpiece tournament um, and you get the chance to play at the Mumbai Indians with Sachin Tendulkar. What was the, what was the little uh, youngster from Shepparton who had made his way to the big stage thinking about that? Were you overawed? Were you just loving every minute of it? What, what was it like playing with Sachin? Yeah, look, it was a um, it was a truly unique experience and one that I really struggle to describe. To be honest, it, it was it was essentially playing like touring as an international cricket team. Um, as you sort of said, I can walk down the streets in Shepparton, and a lot of people, well, most people don't know who I am. But in in Mumbai in particular, we were we were escorted around by um, police officers and plainclothes police officers and. Um, we had commando units in front of the bus and um, everything sort of shut down and locked down and it's a really surreal experience but when when you're in the moment I guess you, you're just trying to make an impact and um, get yourself an opportunity to get out there and play um, but when you reflect on it, it it's something that um, I never would have dreamt of as a kid um, and it's something I was just sort of saw an opportunity and went with a flow and I was very lucky to play four seasons there Um I think in those seasons, our team won two IPLs and a Champions League. Um, so I got to play the Champions League um, game, but um, not the IPL uh, Champions game. So it was it was such a unique experience. Sachin is um, such a lovely person. Um, much like a lot of elite level sports people, his focus is um, quite unique. Um, having just watched the Michael Jordan documentary, um, He's nowhere near as competitive as Michael Michael Jordan is, and he's done quite the opposite in terms of 
uh, being a man of the people. Um, but you see the focus when, when they get into training and it's, it's just a switch that they flick and um, you can't get between him and a, and a bowler. He'll just keep eating for hours and hours and hours on end. So um, we often struggle as, as cricketers to, to turn up and choose benefits eight-minute session um, <laughs> where this guy turns up and he uh, he makes the most of a, an hour or two hours on, on the daily. Um, we might get off a flight, go straight to training, and, and he's doing the same thing every time. So uh, just that, uh, I guess that experience to the, the Uber Elite um, mindset is just something so unique that you just don't get an opportunity to to come up against or come across um, in everyday life or even playing state cricket in Australia. So, um yeah, I, it's unbelievable um, to, to watch to watch him from afar um, and to be in the thick of that. To, uh, just a kid from Shepparton, um, he never really dreamt of that opportunity. Was something uh, it was absolutely amazing. Uh, it still sort of gives you shivers with some of those experiences. Um, even walking out to bat with such in the Wankiri Stadium, which is obviously Mumbai's premier stadium, there. And um, yeah, I, I don't think I uh, I came to. I think I was on. On another planet, we're all out there for, but um, that wasn't close to an AFL, or even the, the intensity of the, the crowd is too much of an AFL grand final that um, that they get every night um, that they play AFL. Uh, and yeah, the IPL has been such a blessing for world cricket, and um, yeah, I just hope that our leagues around the around the world are able to, to get. Um, Get into a similar position again um, post this COVID nineteen because um, it's generating a lot of revenue and it's obviously trickling down to grassroots cricket as well, which is which is where we need um, the most investment moving forward to ensure that cricket stays healthy. Absolutely, and you mentioned a couple of IPL titles. I think when I first met you, that was the first thing I noticed. You were wearing an IPL champions watch. You still you still keeping <laughs> keeping the uh, IPL watch? Is it still getting a run? Uh, there's a couple of them, and um, very selective now because I've just I work in I work in marketing and um, cricket Australia is uh, one of my biggest clients, so I've just got to be careful that, um, <laughs> that I'm not not boasting or um, being one of those uh, those players that uh, sort of shows off around the place. But no, they they get a little bit of a run, but not too much. Um, I'm very very grateful of those opportunities, but um, obviously that part of my life is. Is um is not necessarily the forefront now. It's um it's around family and and the next chapter. So I'm really uh yeah I I really appreciate it. It's something that I've reflected on a couple of times. But um yeah, it, I think once I'm older, the stories will start rolling out and yeah. they'll change by uh, times one hundred each year. And my <laughs> grandkids will <laughs> my grandkids will switch off pretty quickly. Uh, classic, classic. And now. We mentioned the IPL titles. Just a couple of domestic titles that stick out for me. Um, 2009-10, when it was the state-based Big Bash competition, I think you only played the one game that season and it happened to be the final and you were player yep. of the match. 42 off 19 balls. Finchie got runs as well. Um, can you talk us through your recollections of that and, and how much something like that meant to you performing in the biggest game of the year? Yeah, so that was that was my last game for Victoria from memory. Um, Finchy Finchy essentially um, took my batting spot with Hodgie that summer um, in the in the Big Bash. So um, I feel like it was the right decision upon reflection. Finchy's obviously <laughs> captaining the Australian ODI and T20 team, but um, yeah, look, it was quite tough in terms of 
Um, I think Dwayne Bravo was in as well. That was the first time we'd had an international player coming up to Victoria. So it was really, it was really challenging um, in the lead up and even um, on the day of the game, I didn't know where I was batting. So I ended up batting at seven, uh, I think. And um, yeah, in true, in true um, final spirit, you I turned up and there was a bit of a job to be done. I think we were, we were staring down the barrel of maybe a 110 sort of score, which we know in finals is, um, that's a tricky score, but I think we got it to 140 odd in the end. But it was one of those times again where there were just, I was, I was in a good headspace. Once I got out there, um, I stayed still and, and just sort of let go, um, of anything that I was thinking of before it. And, um, yeah, it was one of those innings that, that came off again. It happened to be the Adelaide Oval, similar to the debut, but that, that gave me an opportunity to be picked up by South Australia the following year. Um, that was the third title that I'd, I'd won with Victoria, which I was very lucky um, to be a part of three of the four that they won back in the old Big Bash. And, um, yeah, it was one of those times where I just had to get out there and get a job done. And I think um, from memory, Shippy asked me why I didn't. Uh, I think we ran John Hastings out in that over and Shippy said, why did you Why did you change ends on the strike? And I was like, I was trying to get, trying to get extra runs. Mr. Shippard. <laughs> um, yeah, essentially, um, we got at the end. We got the title in the end, but I think, um, like anyone, that last over we probably kept the form better on strike. But I, um, I was a bit selfless, or I should have been selfish. But yeah, it was a great win. It was a great opportunity um, to have on the highlight it again as a as a T20 player and um, those things sort of. There's a line ball call, um, particularly in IPL, and it was um, it was great to have those experiences behind me to uh, to get it over the line. Yeah, and then the following year at South Australia, you win again. So you kind of like the Midas touch there. <laughs> you you, get, you leave Victoria, go to South Australia, they win, and then uh, another game. Uh, and I, I must confess to our listeners here that I'm very much a Sydney Thunder man. Um, BBL 05. Can you talk us through BBL 05 and um, beating the Stars in the final, but uh, the road to get there uh, and just just that whole season for the Thunder, the, the WBBL girls won the inaugural WBBL competition and then uh, the Thunder winning the BBL after. Fair to say a few lean seasons there for the Thunder on the whole. What was it like to be a part of that group? Yeah, it was, it was, it was one of those experiences that you could write a Disney movie about. Um, Nick Cummins took over as a GM. Um, I think Mike Huffy was there prior to me arriving. That season we had Paddy Upton um, come in. And for those who don't know Paddy, Paddy's um, quite of a left and centre thinker in terms of cricket and, and life, really. He's, um, I think he's, a, he's got a master's in behavioural um, psychology or something along those lines. So Paddy's quite out of the box. So one of the things that we really focused on was um, – was the process and the journey. Um, and what we were really lucky with was um, we had Shane Watson, we had Jack Callis in there as well. Mike Hussey was obviously playing. And Usman Kalaja was in the form of his life. So um, the journey was, I think we won four, four or five games in a row um, and we lost three in a row and then scraped through. I think the Renegades won or the Renegades might have lost in the final group game for us to qualify for the finals. Um we went to South Australia um, to play against the Strikers, and Aussie got a got a hundred in the semi final. Yeah, um, and then yeah, I came back into the team um, to to for the final, um, 
got some runs down the bottom of the innings, but um, that turnaround for the whole organisation was um, was quite significant and something that was a real privilege to be a part of. Um, I think the strategy that Nick um, instilled into that group was around community and it was around the fans, um, which from a GM, a lot of GMs do care about the community and and, um, getting out there and and humanising their players. But Nick was really passionate about that and I feel like that was the start of the Thunder. We were always out there signing autographs post-game um, there was a lot of super fan days that we or super clinics that we went out there and everyone was there getting amongst the fans and it really carried on through to the strategy of, um, of it's being it's okay control what you can control um, we've got the skills to, to win games and take it deep into the tournament so it was almost the perfect storm in terms of how it came together but for the Thunder women to win in the first BBL um, before us and then to, to obviously beat the Stars who um Look, they've, they've been probably the most consistent team across the whole of the BBL without being able to win it. So um, that was extremely special to be able to play with um, Mike Huffey, Jacques Callis, Shane Watson, um, those types to win, to, to be a part of the title uh, was was pretty special. But um, again, that was one of those fairy tales that, um, that you really don't get to experience too often or if at all in your life. So that was my fifth BBL title, which I was, pretty happy with and probably should have pulled up stumps there rather than going around again for a couple of years <laughs> but um yeah that that experience at the mcg again was was um something i'll never forget yeah five bbl titles that's um that's a pretty impressive record i'll take it but <laughs> yeah look obviously it's like the vfl afl some people don't, don't really like talking about vfl but um yeah no it's um it's something that i never Never dreamt of like the the Mumbai Indians experience. It was always, oh yeah, you want to play play for Victoria, and once Big Bash came, you want to play for Big Bash. But um, it's really it's something that those once in a lifetime, like the Michael Jordans or Sachin Tendulkar's, can go out and sail or win three three titles or five titles. But for me, it was just um, opportunity to jump on on the train and um, and play a role. And um, yeah, the more the more I reflect on my career, the more I'm very grateful that I was able to to find a role in those type of teams where I can contribute and and, and be there as a pointy and when um, when you're there to, to lift the silverware. So um, yeah, pretty humble by it, and um, yeah, it's something that I'll, I'll be very proud of. Um, I'm sure in ten years time and. Yeah, start telling people people had it all over again, <laughs> and uh, checking your watch every now and then when required as well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if I can afford it to keep it. <laughs> <laughs> now, now let's talk about your transition out of cricket. You, you're still what I would consider relatively relatively young. You're married. You've got uh, a, a young child at home, so you, you, you're learning to be a dad and. Um, you're learning what life is like after cricket. Can you tell us a little bit about how how that's been for you? Yeah, it's it's been quite um, it's been quite interesting. I know we've all got our our journeys and we've all got different experiences. And for me, I always tried to study throughout my career. And um, early on, I I worked quite a bit. So as a youngster, I worked in my parents' jewelry store. So I knew knew what the work work part was like. Um, I knew what study was like. I finished my um, MBA uh, in the last season that I was playing cricket, so I got that out of the way. Um, 
So the transition was, and it's ongoing. It's been a couple or three years now. Um, but the the real challenge has been around my mindset. So what we do as cricketers, um, and cricketers who play a lot of cricket, it's almost a project based approach. So if you look at it from a project um, perspective from the workplace, uh, what's the, the next match? Is this? This is what I got to do. These are the matchups, and then we stop. We look at the next game and we reflect, but. Um, one of the challenges with that in the workplace is obviously uh, it's not as dynamic in terms of projects. The projects are a longer burn, um, and the the effort that goes into the preparation for a game is similar to that in the workplace. But um, one of the challenges I had uh, transitioning was around um, taking a breath, stopping, and, and relaxing, and um, enjoying a moment. So we we often um, have a eight-week holiday at the end of the cricket season, whereas in, in work life, there's not necessarily an eight-week break. You might get a week or two off, but in between um, projects, um, you really need to stop and, and embrace it and, and really enjoy the moment. Um, so that was one of the things I've really, really learned is um, is that not everything's as urgent as, uh, as what you think it is, um, particularly in terms of prepara- preparation for a game. You do everything you can with a short amount of time and make sure it gets done, but transitioning out, um, you've got a little bit more time up your sleeve. Um, you, there's no championships to win every year. There's just projects or paths that you need to do um, and, and also to take your time. So um, spending time with family during this COVID uh, period has been uh, an absolute blessing in disguise uh, for me personally, but um, obviously just to slow down a little bit, it's been pretty chaotic for 16 or 17 years now and um yeah, I've, I've really, I've really appreciated a, a little bit of a slowdown, and um, to be able to reflect on that transition as well, because um, um, families often um, have to change their routines to to welcome you back um, when you come back from a tour or or back from a game. Um, but to be a part of that whole journey has been really cool and really special, and um, something I've really appreciated. And having an understanding wife would help with that. Uh yes. <laughs> um, yeah. Um, and a, well, yeah, a very patient wife, I would say. Um, yeah, absolutely. The um, well, athletes are—it's no secret that they're quite driven and they're quite—they um, have to be selfish and selfless. Um, selflessness comes um, towards the end, but it's—it'll uh, be interesting to hear of um, anyone that's been different um, during their career to. Um, to not put 100% in there and um, put 100% into their family. I think it's starting to change a little, but, um, yeah, I put a lot into onto, into my sport and, um, yeah, now is definitely the time to be making sure I'm putting back into my family because there have been a significant support throughout that journey. And you you mentioned the moves and fantasies and all that sort of stuff. Um, I definitely didn't play international cricket and I definitely didn't live that life. That must be uh, the intensity must be through the roof there for families, but, um, mine was quite challenging, um, and I, I'm just thankful that I've had a, a strong support network behind me to um, to tolerate or to, um, to support that along the journey. But um, even more so with the reintegration into what the real world or the real people live like, um, it's been it's been uh, challenging at times, but it's something that I'm really appreciative of. And plans for the future? It's a good question. I still don't know. Um, I haven't. Uh, I I sort of retired from cricket and um, hadn't really been involved too much over the last two summers, um, just been focusing on work. So um, I work in sports marketing at the moment, um, 
Cricket Australia is our biggest client that I sort of look after. Um, so I'm really comfortable in this space at the moment. Uh, I love cricket. I love sports. So uh, we'll just see where the wind, wind blows and where opportunities come. But, uh, yeah, look, I, I, I really love um, being around talented young people um, and love giving them advice and sort of steering them in a direction that, um, that gives them an opportunity to be challenged and, and to learn through mistakes. Uh, and give them some context on, on what's important and what's not. So, um, yeah, look, we'll just see, see where the, where the world goes. But, uh, at the moment, I'm pretty happy spending time with family and not padding up or, uh, throwing balls to people for a little bit of time. But we'll see how long before that itch comes back that needs to be scratched. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we can't let you go without asking you our favorite question here on the program. This is very popular with our listeners, this one. We would like to know if Aidan Blizzard could invite anyone to the Nets. Uh, yep. it, it could be a bowler that you thought bowled a bit of fodder, and you might want to tee off, <laughs> or it could be it, it could be it could be someone who is is good with a laugh, that sort of thing. Uh, yep. Have you got three people you could say, "Yep, let's line them up, let's get them down to the Nets"? As soon as COVID 19s finished, I'm going straight to yep. the Nets with these these guys or girls. Uh, look, I knew you and ask this, so. Had a little bit of a think of it, and the the one thing I appreciated most about cricket or the team, the successful teams I played in, was they were super competitive net sessions. So there was no friendships were out the door, and it was just it was uh, it was it was kill or be killed essentially. So I've picked three that are the most competitive guys that I've come up against, and then I've got a fourth that I just I just love him. So I'm gonna I'm gonna roll them out. So Clint McKay is my number one. Yeah. Um, Played with Clint in uh, Dowling Shield uh, under 16 level, and we played together with Victoria, uh, Mumbai Indians, and Sydney Thunder. So he's a great mate, but um, him and I go go at it quite a lot in the net. So that'll be great fun. Rashid Khan, because I I can't pick him, and I feel like that'll be a great challenge. Um, Kieran Pollard is the other one wow. who um, he's the most competitive guy you'll come across. So. He likes to bowl slow balls, longer balls, bowl from wide on the crease. He'll bowl from the other side without telling you. He'll do, you name it, he'll do it. So those are the three. Um, and also I love bowling to Clint and, um, and Kieran. So um, my left arm junk off spin um, <laughs> has got them out quite a few times. So I really do appreciate that from a competitive point of view. I was going to ask uh, you just quickly on yeah. the bowling. Michael Klinger confessed that he – was the worst bowler in the history of first-class cricket. I can confirm that. Yeah, I can <laughs> confirm that. <laughs> <laughs> but but I'd just like to compare his stats with yours. You only got one over in first-class cricket, none for six, and one over yeah. in T20 cricket. And I, I might be none reading. ten, I think it was. Yeah. yeah, no, it was none for ten. So that was uh, in Bangladesh, actually. Their theory was um, that the international, well, you can bowl six balls, before people realise you're no good. So <laughs> I bowled six balls, two of them are half trackers and went for four. So yeah. that theory was sound and sort of executed. Yeah. Um, but my, I think I I got quite a few wickets in um, in Premier cricket, but again, oh, it was probably, um, it was towards the lower end batters and I strategically set a field and most of my wickets were caught on the boundary or someone swung too hard and missed it, got out LBW. So, um, Look, it's not well, shit gets wicked. Um, I am an absolute testament to that theory. <laughs> <laughs> I still got Kieran Pollard out a few times. Um, so 
So I was really wrapped for that. Yeah. Uh, and he was not happy. Uh, and the fourth one is um, Mike Hussey. He's the oh. ultimate gentleman, the uh, one of the most skilled cricketers I've come across. And, and he's an absolute competitor, but has a laugh. So Huss would have to be one of the favorite, one of my favorite cricketers to play with um, across the board, and also just his intensity to have fun um, is is absolutely amazing. So Huss is my fourth. I, if I had to kick one out, I'm not sure who it'd be, but um, Huss is definitely coming. So hopefully, you can get him an accreditation. Yeah, for our net session. yeah he's, our, he's coming. He's coming. Our cricket library net session. Um, we do anything for Mike Hussey at the cricket library podcast. So I'll, I'll, I'll get him sorted. We'll get him in the in, in, involved. Uh, it's it's been an absolute pleasure catching up with you, Blizz. Uh, thanks so much for sharing some of your journey with our listeners, and um, wish you the best for the rest of the lockdown period and. Hope you do get to have some more of that quality time with your family and uh, hope everything uh, in in the years ahead brings success for you. Absolutely. Thank you for your time and um, I appreciate uh, being able to go back on that journey with yourself and, and some of the listeners and uh, look forward to tuning in to who your next victim or guest is. Yeah, word on the street, Graham Manu might be um, might be next in line, so that could, be, wor- could be worth a listen. Yeah. Very good story. I look forward to hearing to it. Excellent. Thanks. Thanks so much. Thank you. A massive thanks to Aidan Blizzard for joining us on the Cricket Library podcast today. And a massive thanks to all of you, our loyal listeners who tune in to each and every episode. We very much appreciate it. And if this chat with Blizz was the first one you've heard and you'd like to hear some other stories of people who have inspired a love of cricket around the world, check out the back catalogue. Michael Klinger was our most recent guest. We also heard from Kristen Beams, Nathan Horitz. We actually had one of our episodes trending at number one on the Indian podcast charts. That was our chat with Tim Ludeman. That's well worth a listen as well. Peter George is in there, Nathan Horitz, and many more great stories in the back catalogue of the Cricket Library podcast. Well, it's time for me to bid you all farewell. It's been a pleasure having your company as always. This has been Matt Ellis for the Cricket Library Podcast. Bye for now.